Howdy. Welcome back to a special bonus episode of For the Greater Defense. My name is Sydney. I'm a second year student at the Bush School and a member of the Ready Room, and I am joined once again with Colonel Gill. Today, we're going to be having a conversation about the war in Ukraine, talking about updates, specifically starting at the strategic level, and then working our way down to some of the hot spots we've been seeing a lot about in the news, like Kharkiv and Kherson. Welcome back, Colonel Gill. Hey, Sid. Great to be back. Great to have you back. So today, we are on day 211 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What are both sides getting right and wrong? So first, I want to talk about Ukraine, and I'm, and I'm going to go ahead and label them the protagonist on this conflict. Uh, the first thing that they're, they're getting right, in my opinion, is, is tactically and operationally, they're staying enemy-focused. They're, they're not looking to take towns, occupy the towns, build big defensive bulwarks and foxholes and stuff like that. They're, they're staying very focused on finding Russian elements and either getting them to... Uh, to essentially surrender or they're destroying those units. And it's mostly the latter. Uh, the next piece I think they're getting right is, is it's president Zelensky. He is, he owns the message. And while Western media sources are, are absolutely allied with him, it's really important. He's out there with that coyote gray shirt with the three day beard. He's clearly going to the gym and eating well and he's almost manifesting the persona of the Ukrainian warrior, which is really important to their culture. And But that doesn't just help with the average Ukrainian citizen. It's also resonating with world leaders. He's engaging. His wife was just at the White House. She spoke at the UN. Uh, and so they own the message. And then the other, the, the byproduct of that is the International Donors Club of all these countries that are donating weapon systems, money, not necessarily weapon systems, medical aid, supplies uh, to the Ukrainian fight, really as an extension of fighting Russia themselves, but really as a reverse proxy. They're, now, Ukraine's not doing everything great. Uh, the, the one thing I am seeing that they need to improve on is the this is going to sound a little hypocritical coming from me as a former artilleryman, but the overuse of artillery. Um, while they're having tremendous effects on the battlefield, the, they're just wearing out the tubes faster than the Allies can provide. Because with artillery tubes, um, you can only fire so many rounds uh, through them before they have to be replaced. And they're just, I think it's something that Western nations are coming to a realization is that, wow, we don't just need to make more cannons we need to make a whole lot more artillery tubes for those cannons uh, for a war like this. And then the other thing I think they need to get better at is rehabilitating the Russian equipment that they're capturing because they're capturing a lot of it uh, and getting it back into the fight. All right. So where's Russia gone wrong? And well, we're right. They're, they're really not doing a whole lot right. Not a lot is going really well for them. They, they're not executing combined arms maneuver and that's bringing in supports tanks tanks that support infantry infantry that supports it everything and then attack helicopters and then almost the non-existent uh russian air force uh that that's actually surprised a lot of members of the intelligence community that that the the air still remains contested and you would have thought the sheer volume of aircraft 
that that Russia would have dominated the skies within days, and they just haven't been able to do it. And then finally, logistics. They, the Russians just have not figured that out. So when you talk about these failures on the Russian side, what do you think are some of the root causes of these miscalculations? Well, first, uh, the 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 chief of intelligence completely underestimated the Ukrainian will to fight. Um, they, they probably thought that, that this was going to be a whole lot easier than it was. But they also miscalculated the amount of support that the allies were going to provide. There was likely a miscalculation of if I invade Ukraine, who is not a member of NATO, it doesn't you know, it, it, it doesn't require Article 5 to bring in NATO partners. But what ended up happening was NATO told its NATO members that, hey, if you individually want to support Ukraine, you can do that. Um, and then also at the same time, the, the Russians, uh, they're learning that training and canned set scenarios like Zapod 17, Zapod 20, these big, massive exercises they're not like American exercises where there's a lot of free play. Uh, these are very canned scenarios, very what we call sticks lanes, uh, where all the tanks are going to do the very same thing in a very controlled environment. And what that creates is a, a lack of training of how to react to stimulus you can't control, like Ukrainians shooting back at you effectively. So this week in particular, we've seen President Putin make a lot of public statements regarding Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Can you talk about these comments? And do you think this is an indicator of possibly shifting his intention in Ukraine? Well, I think he, Putin, whether most people want to admit, is making a rational decision. But he is now at the point where he has gone all in even to the point where he has uh, commented about the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, his recent comments have been actually directed at allies, not necessarily at Zelensky himself and, and Ukrainians, which is where he'd been messaging before. And then the topic of the whole mobilization, I, I think most people see that as just a, an indicator of, um, of a little bit of panic and a loss of operational success. When you, when you call up 300,000 reservists, you're not getting highly trained soldiers. It is going to take a long time for these reservists to, to get trained to a level they'll be put in the fight. The big decision for Putin is going to be do I take a very appropriate systematic approach to training these people or do I just throw them into the human lawnmower, which is what he has been doing for the past couple of months. Can you talk about the domestic reaction in Russia to this partial mobilization? So if you look inside of Russian news, Russian periodicals, not Western driven media or, or the of, uh, you're going to find that that most Russians still have they 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 think very highly of Putin and and that and it's a part of their Russian uh, culture. It did not surprise me that the day he announced that that there were protests in Moscow, but these were in the numbers of the hundreds, right? These these weren't thousands of people storming Washington D.C. like we saw in the '60s in the anti-war movement. They, they, and then plus. There's no constitution like ours. There's no Bill of Rights. There's no civil protection. So, you know, his internal security service just scooped up 
you know, the, the major protester, protesters and instigators. And, and of course, what did we see? Those protests kind of died away. I do think, however, he is fighting an uphill battle for the popularity of this conflict because every day more and more wounded soldiers come back to their homes. You can't hide that. You, you can't keep that out of the, the civilian populace. They're going to see that. Eventually, those soldiers will be veterans, but I don't think they're going to be the veterans of World War II Russia who really inculcated communism and took it as a part of pride. I, I, I'm not sure that is going to occur for Putin. Can you walk us through what a full mobilization would look like and what kind of factors would push Putin to possibly do that? Money. And the second factor is time. Well, while he still is getting on average about $90 billion through, you know, sanctions relief and in, 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 in wormholes and energy, obviously, uh, to, to mobilize 300,000 people just to, just to feed them three meals a day is going to cost him billions of rubles uh, that he doesn't have. Uh, and then what equipment are you going to give them? You've already lost a tremendous amount in Ukraine, and, and essentially you just recreated the Ukrainian army with all the losses that, that he's taken. Uh, so a lot of money. The next going to be time. One time just to get these people through the administrative process of mobilization, bring them on to a form of active duty. In the United States, it takes over 30 days war on terrorism we could we could get it down to 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 weeks for a unit that was already highly trained Uh, but if you take a cold reserve unit in america it still takes several months just to get them ready to go and and i think that's that's just what he's going to eat is he's going to eat several months unless he makes the decision to put him into the human lawnmower Let's talk about the rumors of referendums coming up in Luhansk, Kyrgyzstan, and Donetsk. We've seen this with Crimea, with the point of the gun referendums. If these referendums are successful this upcoming weekend, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, well not well. Um, not well for him, not well for Russia, certainly not well for the, the people in those regions. Uh, he probably messaged it a little too early, uh, knowing that the United Nations was going to speak about it. And as you've seen, even the NATO secretary general has already come out on behalf of NATO and said that this isn't legitimate. Nobody is going to see this as legitimate. Um, Maybe some separatist leaders or something will, but even, even probably the average uh, Russians probably not going to. So it made me question, okay, why do this now? Usually when you take the, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to use the Hitler approach, uh, because he was very successful at doing this, unfortunately, uh, was you only make these territorial gains and referendums and switch the politic of a, of a, of an area when you've militarily, have gains or you've been successful operationally that that the momentum and initiative is on your side but in this case it he has no momentum the momentum is you know i'm losing terrain and the momentum exists with ukraine for the time being um so i i just don't think that that this this attempt to abide by some westphalian law uh, and then be able to come back and say, this is Russia, therefore I have the right to defend it. I, ju- I just don't see that playing out well. Do you think with these referendums, 
if they go through. Do you think that Putin would be using tactical nukes to defend that territory? Where do you see nuclear deterrence playing a role? Yeah, so so I, I'm probably one of the minority people out there that actually thinks that nuclear deterrence doesn't work. Uh, you can go back to the Obama days of the threats of nuclear weapons with Crimea and Georgia, and 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 Putin just wasn't really paying all that much attention to it. He knew he knew it was a bluff. No world leader in common thought would use nuclear weapons, and so but to to be a deterrent as a weapon the enemy actually has to fully believe that you would use the weapon. And, and in the case of the Obama administration, Putin knew that we weren't going to fire tactical nuclear weapons into Crimea or Russia. I mean, nobody, nobody in their right mind thought that that was appropriate. Uh, but in, in this case, I'm not convinced he won't. You, you have a world leader that is increasingly becoming isolated. He's, he's not isolated. He has plenty of allies. Um, but he is operationally losing everything so far. And this is where I think the allies and Zelensky have to be very careful with how far they push this war, because I wouldn't put it past him to drop a tactical nuke uh, where he is gaining or where he's losing a lot of terrain. Well, I want to ask you one more strategic question before we kind of dive into Kharkiv and Kyrgyzstan. How long do you think this thing is going to draw out? Yeah, I, I actually think that, that any, anybody that tells you they know the answer to that question, they, they don't know. And, but, okay, let's go back to IPB. And I think the winter time is going to determine a lot of Russian resolve. And it's not, not put, um, up in the Kremlin. And OK, well, but the average Russian soldier is walking into an Eastern European winter, a Russian Arctic winter uh, that is that they're already demoralized. They're already they have a lack of, you know, logistics from food to water to ammunition. And then all of a sudden I'm going to put that, you know, drop sub freezing temperatures on top of them. They will be ill prepared to execute at the tactical level. Uh, the next will be. Uh, the resolve of the allies to continue to be a part of the International Donors Club. Uh, if that starts to wane as the months go by, uh, we, we could see a potential reversal uh, of Russian losses. And then rolling into the springtime, will they be ready for a, another springtime offensive? And, uh, and I just don't think anybody can really seriously calculate it. I, th I think most analysts can come up with options, but not with much confidence to pick one course of action over another. Well, let's talk about Kharkiv. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen a lot of Ukrainian success in a counteroffensive up there. Can you talk about Kharkiv and why it's an important area to recapture for the Ukrainians? Yeah, so, so Kharkiv's been really interesting. I think a lot of people were anticipating success down in, in Kirshan during the, the spring offensive. They, they sure did a really good job communicating that to the world that they were going to do that. There is uh, one side says that it was an operational deception. I, I, I know that not to be true. Uh, there were there was a, essentially pressuring in directions, Kharkiv and Kyrgyzstan and, and Zelensky's commanders were smart enough to know, OK, I, where I have success, I'm going to reinforce. And that's kind of what you saw play out over the last month was that 
essentially the the dissolution of the first guards tank army the premier tank organization of the russian ground forces just doesn't exist anymore as as a cohesive unit and and just the speed and rapidity at which ukraine was able to reinforce those tactical units frontline units rotate those units off the battlefield and put fresh units on i think that's that's why they've gained some significant success but why is kharkiv important well, it's a major logistics line uh, for Russia from Belgograd down to Luhansk and Donetsk. If you, you know, do anybody looks at a map, they can see that the M20 to the M26 into those two uh, eastern oblasts. If if you control those and the railway, uh, then you're going to control the tempo of the fight. And right now they exist in the hands of Ukraine. Today they do. Um, do I think that Russia could mount a, a serious counterattack locally. I, I'm not seeing it. I, I'm just not seeing it. The big picture and big question for Ukraine is, do I push all the way to the Russian border and establish a defensive line? Well, then the enemy is in their own terrain. We call that interior lines. They can supply themselves at will. Um, Zelensky knows he can't use American uh, weapons to fire into Mother Russia. And so that's a big decision. Do I go all the way to the border or do I turn southeast and head into Luhansk? Uh, I anticipate that probably within the next week or two, you are going to see a right flank by uh, Ukrainian forces and they're going to move into Luhansk. And there will be a little bit of a buffer there on the border, uh, terrain that they're willing not to occupy to not create the um, the image that they're invading Russia, because that's what that's what Putin wants them to do. You mentioned you don't see Russia being able to mount a counter against Ukrainians up in Kharkiv. Why is that? Is it their logistical problems, their lack of manpower, leadership? Well, it's all that. You know, remember we talked in class the measure of combat efficiency. The combat effectiveness is: can a unit do a certain mission? combat efficiency is how well they can accomplish that mission. And I, and I think Ukraine uh, and the allies have just done an amazing job at, at understanding the fight, one, but two, going after those things that restrict Russia's ability to, to go on the offensive. One, that is Ukraine firing into Russia with their own, with their own kit, with their own weapons. And, and uh, up until about uh, two months ago, a lot of people probably started to notice on, on online forums, the, you know, explosions in ammo depots in Belgograd. Well, those were strategic depots for frontline Russian forces, you know, going after bridges, railroad junctions, uh, supply convoys. And everybody knows when a tank runs out of gas, it's just an expensive pillbox. In talking about Kharkiv, you talk about the logistics successes of the Ukrainian military. Let's move south and talk about Kyrgyzstan, kind of similar story with a counteroffensive growing there. How is Kyrgyzstan similar and different to what we're seeing up in Kharkiv? Yeah, so Kyrgyzstan's going to be, it's going to prove to be a little bit harder. Um, you know, the, when the, the Russians started paying attention to all the, the messaging coming out in the media about the spring offensive in the south, and they took it literally, and, and we watched in July as multiple uh, battalion tactical groups were kind of pulled out of Donetsk and Luhansk to reinforce forces uh, west of the Dnieper River to kind of counter and blunt that offensive. And so I, I think southern forces of Ukraine 
are going to have a much harder time. And then, oh, by the way, when they get to the Dnipro River, they're going to have the same problems the Russians have been having, which is how do you fight across a river? Unless Ukraine just says, I'm going to stop at the Dnipro, but I doubt very seriously. They, they just can't. Morally, they cannot stop at the Dnipro River. They'll, they'll push on. If Ukraine, the southern military district of Ukraine, maintains a focus on defeating Russian forces and not capturing terrain, they will continue to see tactical successes slower than the Kharkiv movement. But then again, I could be surprised there could be a massive breakout. We, we are already seeing demoralized Russian soldiers uh, leaving equipment, leaving the battlefield and, and, and moving back to Russia. What could a weekend referendum mean for Kyrgyzstan? You know, I don't think it's going to mean much. I, I think it's going to make Putin happy. It might make the Duma confused. Uh, of, OK, what do we do with this place now? Do we redraw the maps? Um, but I think internally, especially to Kyrgyzstan, where you're already seeing the dissolution of Russian civic control. Uh, and, you know, Ukrainian special operations going after these people, capturing them or killing them. Um, I, I think they don't necessarily see themselves as legitimate leaders. They want to be legitimate leaders of Kirshan, uh, but they kind of know. You can see in the interviews in their faces that these are really just talking points. So, so they could have a referendum. We all know it's going to be a lie. We all know that it's going to be forged ballots or people are going to be forced to go to the polls. There will be an attempt at an IO, an information operations campaign, Russians to portray free and fair elections. We know that that's not going to be the case. And, and international partners aren't going to recognize them anyway. Can you talk about the political hit that Putin would get from losing Kyrgyzstan or Kharkiv? So, one, I think he's already lost Kharkiv. I mean, it's a matter of days or weeks before he loses that. But if Ukraine is successful in the south, we are essentially back to where we started pre-invasion. Uh, essentially, there's this I and mean, they've got to be able to repatriate Melitopol and Mariupol. I actually think Zelensky is going to go after Mariupol because it was such a hard-fought fight that it became an emotional and moral symbol for the fight in Ukraine. Just to, to watch the Russians essentially rubble a town, paying no attention to civilian casualties. And then you had the several hundred Ukrainian fighters who fought in some cases to the death. Uh, I, I really think it, it's going to become a moral imperative that, that Zelensky is going to feel. Politically, I think that, that Putin's probably going to take a significant hit. He will probably have some ministers like we saw last week calling for his ouster. Uh, but I think in the long term stability of Putin himself as the president of Russia, I, I don't think that'll, that will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Now, if Ukraine can, um, can hold on to enough combat power and retain the initiative and retake Crimea, then I think you probably will see some distance between Putin and the Duma. You'll probably see resignations of the general staff uh, if we don't see them already. But, it, but yeah, if, if you, Ukraine can save the combat power and retake Crimea, then he'll take a hit. 
Well, thank you for all of your commentary, Colonel Gill. This has been a really, really interesting conversation. I have one last question for you. For listeners who are trying to stay up to date on what's going on in Ukraine, what do you recommend? What kind of open source sites or platforms? So, so one, I'm going to tell you what not to do and, and, and don't pay attention to Western media uh, and then don't pay attention to Ru- uh, Russian media because you're just getting played. You're just you're, you're seeing what they want to see. The best open source information I'm seeing out there, you know, comes from chat channels. Uh, it, it comes from, you know, and, and I'm going to use the word Twitter, but I'm not going to say anybody needs to go uh, sign up for Twitter. But this war has been a watershed for Internet-based information, where the citizenry controls the message. And, and it's really interesting to watch Western and Russian powers try to control the message. The people of the world aren't having it anymore, and it's available to you. And, and so I would my recommendations for anybody that wants to stay updated, stay away from the extreme sides. Uh, and the government-controlled medias, of, like in Russia, and go listen to the people. Well, thank you, Colonel Gill, again for joining us, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Yeah, look forward to it. Gig'em. Gig'em.